I'm here today with Dr. Daniel Snyder, a pastoral counselor in Western North Carolina. Thanks for joining me today, Dan. Glad to be here. I can't stop thinking about the question, the relevance of the question, how do you know what you know? How much information do you personally need to make a decision? For those people who stormed the Capitol, for instance, for those people who, who um, believe in their heart of hearts that the US election was stolen, they're believing, and we all do believe, that I personally have constructed a story here out of what I've heard and what I believe, and this is the truth. Well, you started with how do you know what you know? Um, which is a big question. That's, you know, philosophers have been thinking about epistemology for a long time. But it sounds to me like if we burrow down on that, um, the, the, the immediate concern has to do with how do we know in this moment that one thing is true and one thing is false? And how, and how is knowledge constructed in those particular uh, polarized camps? The people in this tent believe X, people in this tent believe Y. Both tents are convinced that they're talking the truth. And so how is knowledge constructed within those respective tents? I don't think we can do all that in 20 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> well, as I say, my, my sister once looked at me and said, what do you just sit around and think deep thoughts all the time? <laughs> I hear an underlying concern about building relationships across division, that you don't like the polarization, you don't like this sense of, of, of being radically um, inhabiting entirely different universes with people, that there has to be some common standard of what is true and what is not true. How else are we gonna build anything that even resembles human community? So getting at the question of what is true and how do you know what is true uh, is kind of fundamental to any advance toward what we might call unity. Most of us are going around with the assumption that we're rational beings and that any rational being presented with plain and obvious facts would have to agree that that is in fact the way things are. And as long as we have that assumption, whenever we encounter someone who says, no, the moon really is made out of cheese, and they're just absolutely fixed on that, we pull out our hair. We go, what? I don't get this. How could anybody possibly believe such nonsense? And so we get totally frustrated, and we have no avenue by which we can begin to find common ground with somebody who believes that. But if we can question that assumption and step back from this notion that we're rational beings um, and begin to see that we are narrative creators, creators of stories, um, then that begins to kind of loosen up the polarization a little bit. We have a little bit more room within which we can inhabit different stories and find commonalities and so on. And most people in Western culture say, well, I know what I know because I'm a rational person and everybody else is a rational person. 
That's what it means to be a human being. And we can use our reason to come up with true statements. What I'm saying is we have to question that basic assumption that we are rational creatures. And <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's what Jonathan Haidt is questioning as well. He's saying, no, we're not, we're, we are not independent researchers, each one weighing all the relevant evidence and coming up with true statements. No, that's not how this is working at all. And if you have that assumption that that's how things are working, you're just going to constantly bump up against walls. For those people who stormed the Capitol, for those people, part of what they're doing is believing that they have put together, because you talked about what's the story you're putting together that you're believing, they have put together the story they're working around that instead of thinking, oh, some part of this might be irrational or overly emotional on my part, they're believing, and we all do believe, that I personally have constructed a story here out of what I've heard and what I believe, and this is the truth. I would say yes to all of that, except I don't think that they have, most of us, right or left, have this capacity to be that self-observing. We're not going around saying, oh, I've constructed a story, and because <laughs> of this story, you know, we're not doing that. We inhabit the story. It's a difference between the dream ego and the waking ego, really. I mean, if the dreamer is in the story, the dreamer is not thinking, oh, this is an interesting dream, unless you're a lucid dreamer. But if you're in the dream, you inhabit the dream. It's the narrative. You're, you're breathing underwater, and you don't even question it. That's just the way it is, because you're in the narrative. It's the waking ego that says, well, tell me, tell you about the dream I had last night. Well, it was bizarre. I was breathing underwater. That waking ego knows that it's telling a story about a belief in reality. So it's one layer removed. And see, what I love about what you just said is that part of what I've been focusing around, you see, I'm a biographer. And as I have continued to ask myself, moment after moment in decades of journalism and biography writing, how do I know this is true? I find observing, it really, it's very, very exciting to me. And I, I realize that that makes me unique in a certain way. It makes me a good journalist, biographer, but I do look around in my everyday life and feel that I'm uh, more observant than a lot of people. And I also understand that a part of that has to do with various traumas I've been through in my life. And I have to keep looking around to see, is it safe here or not? To get back to your point, powers of observation, I don't know, I guess that makes me go, well, why don't more people have more powers of observation? Isn't it fun? Don't people find that fun? Well, I think there are lots of ways to respond to that, but one is just Maslow's hierarchy, right? So many people in this world are just living at the basic survival level. If your primary attention is focused on putting food on the table and staying warm in the winter and protecting your family, you really don't have a lot of free brain wattage to go around having thoughts about, oh, gee, what is the narrative self? What is the, 
rational self, you know. I understand everything I'm saying is coming from white middle-class privilege, but I'm just trying to get down to, I'm trying to make some of these huge issues a little more <clears throat> down to the personal level of what is one thing I myself can do right now yeah. that would help bring healing and unity yeah. to, to my country, which is just truly has never been in a bigger mess. I think about if Abraham Lincoln had to do <clears throat> deal with the Spanish flu at the same time, which as we know was not from Spanish people. One thing that you can do that we can all do that actually doesn't require some particular outward action is you can begin to do the very thing that we're talking about, which I, I know you already are, uh, which is to question the background assumptions of who we are as who, who you are, who I am as a person, and begin to really live into a much more relational um, epistemology, a more relational metaphysic, a more relational way of understanding human beings and life. And that is that uh, addresses the problem on a number of levels. It certainly addresses privilege because actually, to be fair, we shouldn't be saying we because the we in this conversation is two white people. Yes. Um, but the, the reality is that, that what I'm talking about in terms of individualism and rationalism really is a white Western. One could even say a white male Western, although it certainly bleeds over into lots of other communities. But um, it's certainly not shared by all cultures. And to make very broad, probably way too broad of a generalization, um, I think many women are socialized into a, more of a relational sense of being than men are. I think uh, people of color and um, uh, people who, who struggle with um, economic injustice in particular, those communities uh, and certainly Native American communities, uh, again, it's a broad generalization, but I think those folks tend to have a more relational worldview. So, I think those of us who are socialized into quote unquote privilege, it's really privilege only from a socioeconomic perspective. It's, it's, it's quite damaging from a spiritual and psychological perspective. Uh, but those of us who inhabit that universe can learn, really practice beginning to live in a much more relational framing of reality. And if you can shift that frame, it has, it has repercussions on multiple levels. One is it just shifts how you think about the questions. It shifts the kinds of questions you ask. And it shifts how you approach difference with other people. Um, and it also undermines the centering of whiteness, of maleness, of Western Europeanness, and so on. So just doing that, even before you take any outward action, is already to to kind of shift the ground you're standing on, it shifts the narrative that you're in, and therefore it's gonna shift how you engage everyday life. And certainly one of the things that it's gonna make a big difference in for a lot of people, especially now, is it's gonna really, really um, have a direct impact on the overwhelming sense of, of loneliness. How does the overwhelming sense of loneliness that almost all of us are feeling 
in the pandemic one way or the other, even if you're crowded up with your relatives, you still have this sense of loneliness. How does the overwhelming sense of loneliness relate to this other question you're talking about, re relationality? I'm trying to get to an everyday example. There's this lovely story about the Dalai Lama who was um, giving a conference somewhere and somebody asked him, well, okay, tell me, how do you deal with loneliness? He had to ask this person to repeat the question several times. He did. He had no construct within his mind. What? What? What is that? What are you talking about? Isn't that amazing? I mean, it just shows how the background assumptions that we make about the nature of reality and the self construct our inner experiences toward loneliness and despair. In his case, he had not only his solid relationship with his higher power, but he also had this ongoing, fluid, living, breathing relationship to every single thing around him, rock, bird, two-legged, etc. right? Exactly. Now, one could say, okay, but the, that's the Dalai Lama. He's got all these people around him who just love to be, you know, and that would be a Western way of saying, well, he's not lonely. Of course, he's got all these people around him. But that misses the point entirely. It's the inner construction that the way he constructs the world and himself in it that has no place in it for loneliness because it's not an individualistic, isolated worldview. When people walk up to the Trader Joe's or the Walmart, as we've all seen in videos online, and the poor person standing there, the employee is just saying, I'm sorry, could you put a mask on? And the other person is clearly feeling that I'm an, I'm an American and it's my right to walk in this store because this is a capitalist, well, they don't go that far, but this is a capitalist society and it's my right to go in here and buy something. And that's the story that that person is telling himself, herself at the time. And you, employee at the door, you are standing in the way of my right as an American. And so the story they've constructed is this employee is anti-American and I'm the real true patriot here, mm -hmm. which gets to, you know, I mean, I could have called the podcast, who is a true patriot? It's, it's the question, it's one of the questions that comes out of how do you know what you know? But this came out of the question of choosing what's a little more difficult than what's easy. It was easier for a lot of people to keep believing everything that came out of Donald Trump's mouth and still easier for them to believe that. And, but sometimes we have to choose what's harder. Right, uh, you and I would certainly agree with on that. But if you're in that Walmart confronting that person and you say, well, gee whiz, I think we all just need to choose the harder path rather than the easy one. <laughs> <laughs> My guess is he's going to look at you like you're, you know, got two heads. Yeah, no, you're right. That's not going to work in the moment. What would work in the moment? I mean, what does work for those people, those poor employees? How do they in that moment 
reach that person. I think I'm hearing a, a real kind of a fundamental bottom line question that you're asking, which is how do you do this? What does it look like on the ground when you are engaged with somebody who's foaming at the mouth and telling you that you're anti-American because you're insisting that they wear a mask? I know this is why you're a good therapist. This really gets to my grief, my personal grief about what's going on in the country now is that both of these people are doing what they in their heart of hearts believe is quote unquote right. And that they're acting on what is quote unquote true. And that's why I have to keep engaging certain people in a podcast around how do you know what you know? It's, it is truly, I mean, as I say, you're a therapist, this is my personal grief right now. The division is so grievous. And I'm not saying it's easily fixable, but each person, I felt that perhaps one good thing that came out of this last election between Trump and Biden is that didn't more Americans see that every single vote counts? How could you miss the vote counting ad nauseum 24 seven? I was watching CNN, you know, really it's 3 a.m. Those same two ladies are sitting there in the mask. One, two, three, um, check, check, check. Uh, I hope that part of what came out of this that was good was that more people and maybe young people who hadn't voted before or, or who haven't voted yet did really see that each vote counts. Uh, but anyway, I know we have to wind this up. If you had a child, for instance, coming to you, dad, how do I get through this, these, this horrible division here? What is like the one thing I can do to feel better about my country right now? Make me part of the answer and not part of the problem. Okay, well, one of the things you need to do is to follow the particular gift that is you. You in who you are um, is already a gift to this world. And so you being you is important. It's, 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 there's great value in just being oneself. There's also great value in what you do. Um, but I would say the place to start is to understand that you are placed in this, on this earth for a purpose. And it doesn't mean that you have to heal the whole thing. It just means that you've got to play your part in it. And so bring your gift to the world, whatever that is, that matters. That'd be the first thing I would say. Then I would say, double down on your uh, relational skills. Learn how to be in compassionate relationship with others, in particular with those with whom you disagree. Learn that skill. Get good at that. Doesn't mean you have to agree with people. It means you have to know how to relate to a wide range of people. Those are, those are two really fundamental things, I would say. The third thing I would say to that kid is let's keep talking about it. You and me, we're, we have this really important 
relationship. I love you, you love me. We're having a real conversation here. Let's talk about what it means to be in relationship and let's use this relationship as a place to learn about that. I mean, that's what I do as a therapist often. So um, there are tons of things that we are not anywhere near as powerless as we think we are. Part of it is learning to do things and learning to do new things. But, but a big part of it is learning to see what you're already doing and to affirm that and to give it proper value. We tend, to, we tend to underestimate the importance of just being who we are. This, this project that we're all engaged in, this human project of, of, of moving toward a truly ecological community is, is a long arc, right? Like Dr. King said, it's a very, very long arc, but it bends toward justice. It bends toward ecology. It bends toward love. Love is the thing that drives us from the center out and it is a thing that encompasses us from the outside in. Inhabit that world, learn to inhabit the world of love. And you can frame that religiously if you want to, but you don't have to. But learn to live relationally and with wisdom and integrity and you will make a difference. That'd be the main thing I would say to that kid. Well, Dan, thank you for the hour of therapy disguised as a podcast. <laughs> disguised as my first podcast. Um, all right, Dan, I look forward to seeing you in person outside the drip. Yeah, it'll happen one of these days. All right. Love you, my love, friend. Love you too. Bye. Bye.